Well, hey, good morning again, Sailorville Church. How are you? Good, I'm great. Thanks for asking. That's becoming a thing around here. I like it. Hey, we are in the middle of, uh, well, really sort of starting to wind down this series uh, called Your Questions, God's Answers, our summertime preaching series. And uh, my goodness, it's been awesome, hasn't it? Uh, this little series has my family asking more questions and asking God for help more and even having some really great conversations about some of the things that we're facing right now. And maybe the same is true for you. Uh, conversations are a really good thing with your roommate, your spouse, your family, people in your small group. That's part of how we learn. If you're a parent or you spend any time around kids at all, you know that they've got a lot of questions, right? Can I, you know, in a, in a different kind of church, I'd say, can I get a witness? And, uh, you know, all the parents and kids workers would say, amen. That's right. Our little guy's turning eight in a few weeks, and uh, my goodness, does he have a lot of questions. And we love it, you know, most of the time, at least, but um, without questions, there's no learning. So questions are important. But the other day, he and one of his little buddies were hanging out in our living room, and we overheard them talking about church, and you think, okay, pastor's kid, always talking about church, and uh, it's not always the case. It's not really all that common, actually. So Meredith and I were trying to listen in without being like really noticeable, right? So we're sort of around the corner trying not to make it obvious that we're listening. And so Judah and his friend um, are comparing the churches that they go to. So Judah's trying to convince his buddy that Sailorville is the best church in the whole world. And his friend is trying to prove why his church was better. And uh, it's an interesting discussion. What, what's interesting is the evidence that they were both giving to support their own cases. Incredibly solid evidence. Like, my church is better because we have donuts every Sunday. I mean, come on, who can, who can argue with that, right? Or, uh, my church had VBS and we, did, we had a giant rat that did a backflip on stage. I mean, come on, how can you beat that one? Uh, another one said, we get to play in the gym between services if our parents let us. So, you know, all the key indicators of a great church. So it was a lively conversation, but it was really starting to get just a little bit heated, and, and each of the kids were trying to prove that their church was the better church. And so like every children's argument, they decided to solve it by asking an adult. And so Judah turns to me and he says, Daddy, tell my friend that Sailorville Church is the best church in the whole wide world ever. And you got to know, there's so many reasons why I could have just died right there and lived a full and happy life, okay? <laughs> uh, I'm a pastor. Meredith and I have served together in the church from before we were married. We love this church. We love the church overall. And uh, here was our kid actually pleading his case like a lawyer in front of his friend. And, and then, not only that, but he actually wants our opinion. I mean, this is pretty amazing, right? He cares about what his parents think. Meredith and I just stood there for a second trying to, like, soak in the moment. We were just like, ah, this is so amazing. <laughs> now, here's a pro tip. If you hear two kids arguing and they ask you to choose which one is right, there's a really strong chance that they don't actually care about your opinion at all. They just want to know who's right. You're totally being set up. I'll just be honest with you right now. That's what's happening. Kids just want to know if you're on their side or on their buddy's side. They really don't care about your opinion. They're so fickle, incredibly fickle when it comes to that stuff. So just as I was about to regale Judah and his friend with this amazing theological, historical, philosophical answer to his question, they got up and walked away. And here's another tip Meredith's trying to teach me. Kids don't love complicated answers. It's hard for a guy that likes communication, right? Here's the thing. Judah's question sounds simplistic. Which church is the best church? 
But as is often the case with kids' questions, it's a question that adults often ask too. We just tend to complicate the answers. So what if we reframe the question a little bit by asking, uh, by asking a question that sounds like one that you might have asked a little bit recently, or quite frankly, maybe you should be asking right now, and here's the question, how do I know if my church is honoring God? How do I know if my church is honoring God? Are there characteristics that are common to churches that God is pleased with? Is there a set of foundational elements that God says, yep, those are the things that I'm looking for in a great church? Or to put it more bluntly, what would Jesus think if he spent a week with Sailorville Church? Now, I say a week because church is more than just walking into this room on Sunday, right? We'll talk about that a little bit later. But what would Jesus think if he spent a whole week with us? <laughs> so what are the characteristics of the church that honors God? Believe it or not, the Bible gives us several clues to help us answer that question, so we're going to spend most of the rest of our time before we get to the Lord's Supper this morning uncovering these characteristics in the very, in the very first group of Christians who did church together in the book of Acts. So that's where we're going to be this morning. And we're going to jump into the story at a pretty critical spot. Here's the context. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected. And he's walked and talked with people for 40 days in his real, his tangible, his touchable, resurrected body. And then he went back to heaven where he's right now preparing an amazing forever home for his family, those people who are Christians. But before Jesus ascended, before he went back up to heaven, he turned to his friends and he gave them their marching orders. We call it the Great Commission. Here's one version of it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power, Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that progression essentially becomes the outline of the way the early group of Christ followers spread the message of Jesus. And so from Jerusalem, which is where our story starts today, then through the surrounding areas and beyond to the ends of the known world. And you can read the book of Acts and see how it plays out like that. And so in Acts chapter 2, like Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit does come, and boy, does he bring the power. And filled with this power, the apostle Peter, the preacher, stands up, and he walks the whole story back through the Old Testament, showing his Jewish listeners who were gathered there in Jerusalem at one of the most important and biggest religious holidays of the whole year. So Peter's showing them that this Jesus, the one that they've been waiting for all along, was Jesus. And what did they do to him? The Messiah, the promised one, the son of David, the seed of Abraham, the one who was greater than Moses. What did they do with this Jesus? Look at verse 36 of Acts chapter 2. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you, what? You crucified him. Talk about seeker sensitive. Way to go, Peter. Peter. That'll really help you make friends. Don't you realize this crowd in front of you is the same crowd that yelled, crucify him, when they were given the choice to set Jesus free just a couple weeks earlier? They're volatile. They're liable to turn on you, Peter. Don't rile them up. Don't you know that people want preaching that makes them feel good about themselves? They don't want to be convicted. After all, Christians get a bad rap already for being a little bit judgy, right? You're not really helping our cause, Peter. Maybe you could have just saved that whole bit about the Jesus that you crucified for later when there weren't so many people around. Or maybe you could have just tweeted it so you could take it down later if it didn't go over well the first time, right? Because that's what we do. A few years ago, 
Meredith and I were walking around our neighborhood, and we noticed that there were some new people moving in. And so we stopped and introduced ourselves, and we did the small talk thing, and then sure enough, the husband asked me, so what do you do for a living? And I'll just be honest with you, there are times when I like to be a little bit incognito, like not tell people what I do right away, just to see where the conversation may go. That's kind of how I am. <laughs> but this time I told him, I'm one of the pastors at Sailorville Church. And immediately his wife steps in and says, oh, we will never go to that church. You guys believe people are going to hell. That's what she said. Well, there you have it. Pleased to meet you. I'll just get my mail and move on, right? <laughs> I have to admit, in the moment, I wished that that wasn't the first thing that she thought of when she thought of Sailorville Church. And I still don't really want to be that thing. I don't want us to be that church. That, that's the only thing people think of. I want us to be a friendly church, a loving church, a church that's in and for our Des Moines metro community. But make no mistake, if you die in your sins and don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, you'll spend all of eternity in a very real place of torment called hell. And we believe that. And there are really friendly churches all over the place, and some of them in our neighborhood this morning, that aren't preaching that truth. And yes, that's not a very convenient message, is it? But, this will be hard for some of you, a church that preaches a convenient gospel isn't a church that pleases God. A church that preaches a convenient gospel isn't a church that pleases God. So do we believe that people go to hell? Inconveniently, yes, we do. Because that's what the Bible preaches. How did that first century Jewish audience respond to Peter? It's a tough message. Watch how they responded. Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked or wicked generation. I mean, Peter, come on. Relax a little bit. Repent for the forgiveness of sins, you crooked generation. I mean, I know truth is truth, but can't you just leave out the part about sin right now? I mean, this is sort of our kickoff service, Peter. It's Acts 2. I mean, come on, we're just getting together here. We want people to come back next week, don't we? Maybe we just wait a little bit, maybe a couple weeks to talk about repentance and sin and crooked generations and all that sort of stuff, because we want people back. Listen, if you're a part of a church, you're visiting this morning, you're watching online that preaches a convenient gospel, one without confrontation, if you don't hear the word sin or hell, or repent on Sunday mornings or in your small groups, if your kids come back from VBS and they don't talk at all about the Bible, maybe you're in a social club, maybe you're in a moral majority, or a gathering of really nice people, or even a, a weekly shot of quality music and feel-good sermons, but a church without the gospel is not a church. That's the first priority of churches that honor God. They preach the whole gospel. Preach the whole gospel. Say the rope. Our church is a friendly church. I meet brand new people every year, every week here. 
We want to be known as a loving church. That's the greatest commandment, right? Love God, love your neighbors. Obviously, we don't want to be rude or snobby or dismissive or, or arrogant or aloof. But friends, in our compassion for people, we cannot compromise the truth. Compassion cannot lead to compromise. Compassion cannot lead to compromise. It's never our desire to offend, but if we do offend, let it be because we're preaching the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, maybe you've come to Sailor this morning from another church in our area. There are a whole bunch of people that are sort of shuffling and migrating. You're visiting or maybe even you're watching online. Here's the question you need to ask. Ask this. When was the last time I was cut to the heart by what was said from the pulpit? Peter's listeners were. If you're not convicted by truth, one of two things is true. Either you are not filled by the Holy Spirit or your church is not. If you're not consistently convicted by truth on Sunday mornings or in your conversations with people at your church, either you are not filled by the Holy Spirit or your church is not. It's been a long time since you were driven to your knees in repentance. Either you are blinded and callous to your need for forgiveness or you're believing a convenient gospel. Someone called it coffee cup Christianity recently. Either way, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Get yourself to the cross or get yourself to a place where the cross is preached. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. Peter's listeners got it, didn't they? They were convicted, and the only next logical step was to ask, Brothers, what should we do? What do we do with this conviction? How do we handle this sin? Peter, don't leave us here. Tell us where we should go next. This last Tuesday... We had almost 350 men in our gym for steak and corn dinner. It was awesome. 350 guys, that's tons of fun. And by the way, that's like 200 pounds of meat, 800 ears of corn, dozens of volunteers, and I guarantee more butter than you'll see at the state fair. I guarantee it. <laughs> Amen, someone says, yeah. Both of our speakers, our own Jacob Smuck and then our church planting resident Stephen Moore, just did a fantastic job presenting the gospel clearly. And, and I was cleaning up with a couple guys afterwards, and one of our Sailorville men introduced me to two guys that he had just met that night. They were visitors. They came to the stake and corn, and one of them had asked for a Bible. And so I stood there for a couple minutes when a few of our other Sailorville guys came and grabbed him a Bible and then, and then began to explain the gospel to him and even set up a, a time to start getting together and working through an evangelistic starting point study. Isn't that awesome? And this guy walks away hearing the inconvenient but inescapable truth, the gospel. And he says, brothers, what should I do next? And so how did Peter's listeners respond? What did they do next? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Pretty simple, really, right? The gospel demands a response. It demands a response. Either you deny the message and you walk away, or you accept the message and you join the mission. In Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people believed the gospel message that they were hearing, and they got baptized as an outward expression of their confession of faith, and then they became the world's first megachurch, right? By the way, imagine starting a church with 3,000 people on the first day. If any one of our church plants had 3,000 people, oh my goodness, that'd be amazing. And some of you were like, yeah, that'd be awesome. I love the loud music. I love crowds. I love, I love the potlucks that would be, that'd just be so fantastic with all that many people. 
And our parking attendants and our children's workers are like, no thanks, I'm out. <laughs> House church anyone? They're like going starting a movement, you know? But listen, there's an important point here. The people of God are responsible to share the whole gospel. That's our responsibility. There's no magic formula, though. There's no if-then clause when it comes to the results. Just because we preach our guts out or lead gospel-centered recovery or small groups or have truth-filled counseling sessions, God doesn't promise the 3,000. In fact, when you keep reading through the story of the early church in the New Testament, you find out pretty quickly that there's persecution around every corner and that sometimes God grows the church through the salvation of 3,000 in a day and sometimes he grows it through persecution one at a time. And so the church's job is to honor God by preaching the truth and God will take care of the results. That's what we do. The church that honors God preaches the whole Gospel, believe in the life, the death, the substitutionary death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, be forgiven by God, and begin taking little steps of obedience that make you more and more and more like Jesus. It's an inconvenient truth. But it's convenient to water down the truth if you care more about the approval of people than you do about the approval of God, right? I've been there so many times in my own life. I've been more concerned that someone like me than that I show them that Jesus is the main story in my life. I kept my mouth shut too many times. But Peter didn't, and the early church didn't. And by God's grace, neither will this church, Sailorville Church, right? So family, will we be a church full of people who preaches the whole gospel? Lord willing, we will. The book of Acts now zooms out from the events of just one day to kind of a wide angle, showing us a, sort of like a video montage of what took place in the regular rhythms of that Jerusalem church. So look at the next few verses with me, starting in verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and then explaining fellowship here to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." It's a really fun way to kind of see the early church in action, sort of like we're watching a week's worth of reality TV here, right, in a couple of verses. Dr. Luke, the writer, kind of grabs these scenes from the daily lives of the Jerusalem church and edits them together to help us see the priorities of this growing group of believers. And remember, we started with 12 disciples, and then we added about 120 around the resurrection, and then we just added 3,000 in one day to the family. And now, if I'm part of that instant church of more than 3,000, my mind is on overload. I'm trying to figure out how to brand this thing. I mean, it's a church. we got to have a logo, right? We need a catchy, simple phrase like, more Jews, more like Jesus, or something like that. Put it on banners, put it on t-shirts, everything. I mean, I'm working on getting people into small groups in their neighborhoods. I'm, I'm putting out a call for musicians. You can't have a real church without a sweet band, right? I'm talking to accountants about our budget, driving around trying to figure out a building that can hold more than 3,000 people with this church plant. 
I'm ordering laptops and researching insurance options for the staff, writing curriculum for kids' ministry. I'm training new church planters, and I'm trying to figure out how to have a steak and corn dinner that follows every Jewish kosher rule. I mean, I'm on overload here. And maybe you're with me. Maybe it's easy for you, like it is for me sometimes, to get lost in the details, to get caught in the weeds, to major on the minors. I think that sometimes happens to churches too. Sometimes we focus more on the peripheries than the priorities. We spend more time on the programs and we lose sight of the people. We're more concerned with our methods than the message of truth. Last week, Pastor Pat said this really great statement. You're in trouble when the word of God is an afterthought rather than a forethought. When the word of God is an afterthought rather than a forethought. That really resonated with some of you. And you've been making decisions and then going back to check and see if the Bible agrees with you, right? Or sometimes even pulling individual verses out of context to make you feel better about the decision that you made without even asking God in the first place. And I want to take that phrase from last week and apply it to our thoughts for today. Listen, when it comes to the church, we're in trouble if the word of God is an afterthought rather than a forethought. When we come up with slick ways of doing things and then try to squeeze them into the Bible, we are in trouble. Trust me, you can make the Bible say almost anything you want it to say by taking little pieces out that you pick and choose. You've probably seen churches like that. You may be watching online and you think, I'm in a church like that. You may even be a church leader saying, I think I'm leading a church like that right now. It's time to stop focusing on the peripheries and get back to the priorities. The church we see in Acts chapter 2 isn't the perfect church. Really, it's not. But it is a church that focused on the priorities. Number one, they preached the whole gospel. They preached the whole gospel. And then number two, they practiced that same gospel. They practice the whole gospel too. That's the second characteristic of a church that honors God. They practice the whole gospel. You may have already picked this up when we read the passage, but check this out together with me. Luke says that these early Christians devoted themselves to two major priorities. That word devoted is the same English root word used to describe these same people earlier in Acts chapter 2 when they're called devout Jews. In other words, at one time, these people were all in absolutely committed to a Jewish religion that was leading them to an eternity without Jesus. All in, devoted. And here in verse 42, those same men and women were still devoted, but their commitment has a different focus. The object of their devotion has changed. They're not all in on something. Now they're all in on someone. And I don't want to get too far off into the weeds on this, but let's just take a quick theological detour to make an important point. Sometimes you'll hear people say, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you have a belief. Have you heard that? You might have heard it said this way, that's your truth, but not my truth. Friend, please understand this. The level of your commitment to something doesn't guarantee its ability to save you. The level of your commitment to something doesn't, care, doesn't guarantee its ability to save you. I could stand here all day and tell you that I'm deeply devoted and committed to the idea that I am an Olympic gymnast. I could explain my elaborate floor routine. I could tell you what getting the twisties means. I could talk about my skills in the parallel bars. I could even put on a red, white, and blue spandex leotard. I could do that. That takes commitment, doesn't it? And you're like, thank you for not. 
that doesn't mean that I'm an Olympic gymnast. Just because you're committed to something doesn't make it true. Just because you're committed to something doesn't make it true. And that has great implications for your eternity. Here it is. You can be totally committed to the fact that your works, your church, your baptism are going to get, to you, get you to heaven. Your Iowa niceness, whatever it is, you can be committed to that. But your level of commitment isn't the problem. The problem is the object of your commitment. If you're not all in on Jesus, who said, by the way, I am the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, that's what he said, then no amount of commitment is going to save you. If that's you today, stop trusting in your commitment and start trusting in Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, back to the story. What were these early Christians devoted to? One version actually says they were steadily persistent. They steadily persisted. The idea here is that they continued to take little steps in the same direction that they had started taking when they accepted Christ. They didn't just stop at salvation. They didn't just confess their sins and believe that Jesus was the Messiah and then call it good. They didn't sit back and say, well, I guess now that I'm saved, I can do whatever I want, right? No. They intentionally pursued growth. They steadily persisted. They were devoted to what? Two primary activities. Number one, the apostles' teaching, and then to fellowship. So let's see what they are. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What does the God-honoring church do? It practices the gospel by knowing the truth, by being committed to doctrine. They were a studying church. They didn't just get a little teaching here and there on Sundays. They continued steadfastly, persistently. They pursued biblical teaching. This church became a learning community, a faith family that was hungry for doctrine, hungry for theology. They couldn't get enough Bible. Friends, you might have heard the research. It's overwhelming right now. People who claim to love Jesus but don't read the Bible. One author, Alexander McLaren, said this a uh, a little while ago, there are a terribly large number of professing Christians, people whose Bibles are as clean today, except for one or two favorite pages, as they were when they came out of the bookseller's shop years and years ago, before Amazon. You'll never be strong Christians. You'll never be happy ones until you make a conscious commitment to, to the study of God's word. Now, listen to this. You may produce plenty of emotional Christianity, but you will not get depth. A mile wide and an inch deep. So how did this work in the New Testament church? Well, we get a little glimpse of it in verse 46. They met in the cultural center there in Jerusalem, the temple. And Luke tells us that, that they met daily. And then they went back to their homes and their neighborhoods and they kept the conversations going. So picture this. You've just heard Peter or, or one of the other apostles teaching and preaching in the temple. But there's hundreds of people there, maybe even thousands and that kind of environment isn't great for discussion, right? It's kind of like here this morning. We're not having a discussion, really. There's no questions from the floor. It's just weird. So you're hungry for more, and you're in this big environment, and, and so you grab a few friends who live in your neighborhood who are also in the temple that day, and you say, hey, you want to come over for dinner tonight, and we can just talk about the message? And the first church small groups are born, like right there in Jerusalem. And that's how it worked. So even later when the Apostle Paul hits the scene and, and he says to Timothy, the young church leader, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, think about big congregation, temple teaching environment or something like this auditorium, those things entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also in 2 Timothy. The community that learns together grows together. 
The pattern throughout the whole of the New Testament is this cycle of teaching and, and learning and passing that along to others who will then do the same. It's a pattern for the church, a learning church. So where do you fit in this pattern? We both know that there's never really been a time in our history where teaching was more available. Now, a bunch of it is junk, right? So we've got to be discerning when we listen and when we watch teaching. But friends, we don't have any excuse. Biblical teaching is out there. Grab these sermons, these messages from Sunday morning. Listen to the podcasts throughout the week. Check out the sermon questions we put together for our small groups. And then find a group of people who will come over and sit down at your dining room table or at the coffee shop or the restaurant or in the break room and sit there and learn together. Dig deep into the doctrines of God. Sailorville Church, will we be a church devoted to doctrine, committed to truth, and learning together? By great God's grace, we will be that kind of church. The next activity we find the early church committed to is what Dr. Luke calls the fellowship. It's an older word, but a, but a good word. You can see that word fellow in there. It's the idea that someone comes alongside someone else, a, a, a friendship maybe, or better yet, even a partnership. We like the term community here at Sailorville. We're better when we're together. And we value community because the early church valued community. They were devoted to this idea of partnership, of sharing life together, and so we will as well. In fact, God's word doesn't even consider the idea that there could be a dichotomy, a breakdown between Christians and being part of a Christian community. There's just no positive examples in the Bible of men or women who isolate themselves from other believers. And so if you're not involved, if you're not involved in the life of the local church, you're disobedient as a believer to the very concept of fellowship and what it meant to the early church and what it means to us today. And so friends, whether you've been a part of Sailorville Church for years or you're just here this Sunday morning kicking the tires or try to figure out if this is going to be your new church, if Christianity amounts only to sliding in on Sunday mornings and then sliding out and that's a limit of your involvement, then you have missed the point. And by the way, we've missed you too. We need each other. We're better together. The writer of Hebrews couldn't have said it any clearer to his readers and then to us too. They were a group of Jewish Christians, just like those in this early Jerusalem church who had placed their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, but then they were in danger of falling back into kind of a sterile or, or, or callous religious lifestyle. And the writer says this, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so the question is, folks, are you doing that? Are we doing that? Are you in a Christian community that stirs you up to live a life of love and obedience? And you say, dude, I'm here this morning, aren't I? Like, isn't that the preacher's job to motivate me to do those things? Well, maybe, but I'm not coming home with you, am I? I am coming home with you, honey, if that's still okay. Right. I'm not going to be in your living room when your kid mouths off or at your job tomorrow when your boss is angry with you and... I'm not going to be sitting on your couch in your apartment with your roommate when that movie comes on you know you shouldn't be watching. I'm not going to be there. And listen, folks, our, 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 our elders love you. Our staff loves you. But we can't do life with every single one of you. That's where the community comes in. And that's what the New Testament models for us. Oh, sure, here's the discipleship guy telling us to get into small groups again. Yes, I am. <laughs> Some of you. Well, you can argue with the Bible if you want to but it won't get you very far. Take it up with God. I don't know how you can get around it. The New Testament is full of commands to live and learn with one another. 
I just don't know how anybody can think that can happen fully on a Sunday morning. Fellowship happens when the people of God gather together and pursue the mission, living and learning together, and the first church did it all throughout the week. And in verse 42, Luke tells us two specific ways that they shared that community together. They celebrated the Lord's Supper, number one, that's communion. We'll do it in a few minutes here together. They remembered what Jesus had done for them in his death and his resurrection. And then they shared life through prayer. That's the second one, communion and prayer. They were a praying church, not just on Sunday mornings, but whenever they were together, they prayed together. So they were devoted to fellowship, to partnership, to community. And we read several examples of what that looked like for the first group of Christians throughout the rest of this passage. They were united in this common goal of practicing the whole gospel in community. So are you? Is that one of your goals? Judah asked Meredith and I, is Sailorville Church the best church in the whole wide world? <laughs> I don't know. But I do know that we're a church trying to do our best to honor God by making more people more like Jesus. And by sharing from the stage and, and in everyday conversations the whole gospel as much as we know how. And by digging into God's word together and sharing life together. And by God's grace, we're going to continue to know Jesus and to grow in him and to show him to others around us until he comes back. How do I know if my church is honoring God? Look at its priorities. Is it preaching the whole gospel no matter the consequences? Is it practicing the whole gospel by pursuing truth and fellowship, learning and doing life together? Sailorville Church, let's be that kind of church. But let's never take the credit for the results. Look at the end of this paragraph. It reminds us again where the focus should be. Verse 47, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who added? The Lord added. Who brought the increase? The Lord brought the increase. Who gets the credit? God does. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, God says. It's his church. Our job simply is to honor him in it. Will you? Will we be that kind of church? By God's grace, we will. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to learn together about what you want us to be as a church. And God, Sailorville Church, not a perfect church, but Lord, help us to be a godly church, a church that honors you, a church that preaches the gospel, not just from the stage, not just on Sunday morning, not just in this building, but in our everyday conversations, in our relationships, in our online interactions. Lord, help us to preach the gospel, the whole gospel. And Lord, help us to live it out with our, our lives, to practice the whole gospel, not just with our lips, but with our lives as well, Lord. And as we interact with people, for them to look at us and say, there's something different about you. What is it? And yes, Lord, we, we want to be a friendly church. We want to be a loving church. We want to be a church that has Jesus as our main story. And Lord, now we, we want to be a church that remembers and celebrates and centers back on Christ and the crucifixion and his resurrection. Lord, thank you for raising Jesus from the dead. And now we celebrate that together, Lord, in remembrance 
of him. We thank you in your name, amen.